0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, just a reminder that listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. And there are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Now, you'll remember in episode six, we left off talking about the brutal attack on Dr. Apadja Bandara. But before I tell you about that in detail, I want to circle back to the other interviews of P.S. in 1980. Interview number seven of P.S. took place on the 13th of January, 1980. P.S. and his wife, Sonia, were interviewed at their home by a detective sergeant from West Yorkshire Police and a detective constable from Greater Manchester Police. P.S. was asked what he was doing on the night of Barbara Leach's murder four months previously. And he had no alibi. The officers searched P.S.'s house as well as examining his boots and the tools in his garage. P.S. stated that he had provided a handwriting sample in a previous interview, which took the officers by surprise. Now, they would later check with the incident room and they found some interview documents conducted during the red light monitoring However, the Latu report was still, in inverted commas, out of the system. Now, out of the system. What does that mean, you're wondering, right? Yeah, me too. Well, we're going to dig into that when we analyse and assess the Byford report. That's the investigation launched at the behest of then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher into the handling of the Yorkshire R-Word investigation. And that's what it was actually called, you know. They didn't title it The Investigation into PS and government officials still continue to use that god-awful moniker created by the media. I think you're really starting to understand how important legacy is. You see, 40 years on, that's still what it's called on the government website. No note, no update. It's mind-blowing, really. OK, so back to the interviews of PS in 1980. So I talked previously in episode 6 about the 241 suspects that were to be interviewed from the original £5 note investigation. Well, only seven had been flagged as having additional information in the index. But it was later discovered that P.S. was one of 18 others who should have fallen into this category, but who were missed in the initial search of the index. More errors and missteps. And 17 days later, P.S. was interviewed again. And this was called interview number eight. On January 30th, 1980, P.S. was interviewed by two officers as he loaded his lorry at the Kirkstall Forge Engineering Works in Leeds. The officers asked him why his car was in the red light district so many times and where he was the night of Barbara Leach's murder. He explained, again, that he travelled through the red-light districts for work and that he was at home the night Barbara Leach was killed and his wife would confirm that. The officers made a note that P.S. was strange. And interestingly, the same questions were being asked yet again, which leads me to conclude either the previous interviews were not written up or they were sat in a backlog somewhere in the incident room. Again, we'll dig into this in a later episode. And then there's what's now called interview number nine on February the 7th, 1980, just days later. The incident room inspector wanted PS re-interviewed as he was not satisfied with his previous responses. He tasked two detective constables with conducting a more in-depth interview regarding PS's vehicles, his vehicle sightings in the red light districts and his alibis. This time, P.S. was interviewed at his place of work, Clark's, by the two detective constables. P.S. again gave alibis for some of his car sightings, as well as an alibi that he was at home on the night of Josephine Whittaker's murder, which again, he said Sonia would confirm. And again, the officers noted that P.S. was strange. But that was the end of it. There was no cross-checking times regarding the sightings of his vehicle in the red light districts, and still no sign of the latchy report. And only one man really knows what happened to the latchy report. And that was Detective Superintendent Dick Holland. And regarding the interviews, let's not forget that just over a month later, in April 1980, P.S. was arrested for drunk driving in the red-light district of Manningham. Now, was that during work hours, I wonder? I doubt it very much, but I can't tell you that for sure. But what I can say is that this was yet another opportunity to link PS to the attacks. After all, if they'd searched his previous history, they would have seen that he had been spoken with previously about an attack on a prostitute in 1969, which he admitted, and that he was also arrested for going equipped for theft with a hammer in 1969, both in Manningham. The lack of join-up is so disturbing. This really is basic policing. But at least the arresting officers did the right thing regarding one aspect of their investigation, and given that he was arrested in the red-light district in Manningham, they called the incident room and checked with them. But as I said in episode 6, they were told he'd been eliminated. Now, whoever eliminated P.S. on paper has a lot to answer for, in my opinion, particularly because P.S. was on bail for drink driving and he was allowed to be out and about and he killed and attacked more women, including Dr. Apaja Bandera. Now, I thought it important that I just go through chronologically the timeline and the time sequence for those interviews so you get a sense of how many times in 1980 he was interviewed and that he had police contact while well, he was arrested in April 1980. So let's talk about Dr. Apaja Bandera. Dr. Apaja Bandera was from Singapore. She was attending a postgraduate course at Leeds University, having won a scholarship from the World Health Organization. She was clearly a shining star with the world at her feet, and this was an exciting opportunity to work in another country. On Wednesday the 24th of September 1980, the 34-year-old doctor left a friend's house at around 11pm. She heard footsteps behind her in the dark. She tried to let the person walk by. She saw that he was a bearded man, and then she felt something around her neck and lost consciousness. When she woke up, a police officer was standing over her. Headlights from the officer's car had scared the attacker off. Her head was bleeding. The lacerations to her head were believed to have been caused by a hammer. She also had injuries to her face and bruising around her neck. Now, this type of offence and what happened is what I call a near miss in every way. Dr Apagia Bandera was lucky to survive and what timing for a police officer to appear right at that very moment. Her life was saved and the officer narrowly missed catching P.S. in the act yet again. Now, at this stage, P.S. seems to me to be taking more and more risks. Remember less than a month before he murdered Marguerite Walls, and so he's offending more frequently too, it would seem. Again, we often see serial killers become more and more reckless across their offending career. The longer they're not caught the more they start to buy into the fact that they're untouchable and invisible to the eyes of the law and they believe that the police won't catch them. Interestingly, P.S. changes his M.O., his modus operandi, when he targets Dr. Apaja Bandera. This time, he places a rope around her neck to strangle her first off and then he hits her with the hammer. Just a note on the switch-in method... And this sounds a little clinical, but I have to say that placing a rope around someone's neck is not an efficient method to control or restrain or to render someone unconscious or to kill them in a quick and short amount of time. The person will fight back. At the point someone's trying to cut off your oxygen supply, unless you're incapacitated in some way, you will fight tooth and nail. I've seen this time and time again in many, many cases. And I'm talking particularly around domestic abuse cases where strangulation may occur or may have occurred. It may be an attempt on somebody's life and it may be a serious attempt, but that person may well have fought tooth and nail for their survival. Now, perhaps P.S. had a rope to hand in his car at the time when he saw her and he just grabbed it as she appeared walking along the street... Perhaps this was completely opportunistic and he seized the opportunity. Or maybe he wanted to try out something different and try and perhaps mislead the police so that they thought that this was not part of the Link series, that it was somebody else. Only he knows why, and I would opine it was probably the latter. And most likely him becoming overconfident and maybe somewhat cocky in his abilities The fact that he's seemingly invisible to the police thus far because, remember, he's been interviewed and spoken with four times already just in this one year. And still, the police are asking all the wrong questions. But importantly, PS manages to leave at the right time, which again tells me he's good at judging risk. He's not so lost or caught up in the adrenaline-induced excitement of an attack that he cannot judge risk adequately. This tells me he is rational, clear headed, and meticulous. He knows when to leave. And this is an important observation regarding offender decision making and behaviour. This would be very important to understand for any subsequent interview or trial. And I'll be circling back to this. On Saturday, the 25th of October 1980, Maureen Mo Lee had been out with friends planning her 21st birthday. At around 10pm, she walked onto the Leeds University campus and a man called out, Hey you! Hi! Hey! How are you? She thought she knew him because he was so over-familiar. Mo spoke to him, but then realised she didn't know him and sensed danger. She started to run. It was then that she felt something hit her from behind, and the next thing she knew, she woke up in hospital well, you should really hear from Mo herself and she can tell you more in her own words.
2: Um, I was just walking home after a Saturday night. I was out with friends planning my 21st birthday party and I took a shortcut through the university grounds in Leeds and in that road there was a light out and I carried on walking towards Woodhouse Lane, towards the main road. I heard a voice from behind saying, hey you, hi, how are you? I thought, it's bound to be someone I know. So I turned around, I stopped in my tracks and I turned around and I uh, approached a young man. I thought, he must know me, he's really friendly, very light voice, very friendly. And then as I got closer, I realised I didn't know him. So I turned around and carried on walking and I thought, this isn't good. I can hear his footsteps behind me. And I sensed danger and then I started to run and his footsteps got faster and faster. And as I started to run faster and faster, it increased. And before I knew it, I had a massive whack to the top of my head and I just saw the pavement coming towards me and I blanked out.
3: And that was the, the, the last you remember until you, you woke up in, in hospital. I mean, so he hit you with a hammer... Is that right? Yes. And, and so, when did as you
2: realise...
3: yes, so, as so, it turns out... Yeah, go, carry on, carry on.
2: He repeatedly hit me over the head with a hammer.
3: Absolutely. I'm lucky to, lucky to be here. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. So, when did you realise that the attacker was Sutcliffe?
2: Well, he was caught... The attack was in the October, and in the New Year he was caught, and his face came on camera... And I'd seen that young man and I knew deep down it was him when I saw his face on the TV newsreel.
3: And when did the police accept it was him and interview him and so forth?
2: Well, I'm very sad to say they didn't accept my attack because it was airbrushed out, because they were seen to be not conducting themselves as in the way that they should by not catching this serial killer. They ignored my description and my explanation and decided to just move on. So I was airbrushed out of the investigation. Up until 1996, when Chief Constable Keith Halliwell uh, knew about, he'd read the Biford report and he saw my name there and he wanted to interview Sutcliffe and I did and tried to get him to confess but he didn't. He did confess to another uh, couple
1: of attacks but not mine. Mo was really lucky to survive and thank goodness she did. Did you notice how over familiar he was to Mo to get her attention and most likely to put her at ease? The hey. Hey you, hi, how are you? Well, this is to disarm. And ironically, most women feel that we should be polite in this sort of situation. We don't want to offend someone. And did you hear it when she said that she sensed danger? You see, your gut instinct is never wrong. I've seen this time and time again in so many cases. We have more brain cells in our stomach than dogs have in their heads, so when your gut tells you something, believe it. Don't let the brain rationalize it. I highly recommend that you read "The Gift of Fear" by Gavin De Becker. It's an excellent book. I've recommended it many, many times, and I have to say, most rape statements that I've read, the victims sense fear and danger right before the attack. However, more often than not, they rationalised it or they taught themselves around and down. Equally, women and girls, we're brought up to be polite and to put others' needs above our own. We're groomed as young girls to be caring, compassionate, that we want to be liked and that's how we should behave and that we don't want to offend or upset somebody. Rather than get off the train carriage or move seat when we feel uncomfortable, you stay in that uncomfortable situation. Rather than boundary someone and tell them to take their hands off you, you're polite, you don't want to offend them. The man who puts his hands around our waist to move past us, totally unnecessary. Tell him to get off and keep his mitts to himself. Or the man who touches you in a pub or a bar or a club after having a few too many beers. And no, he's not simply handsy, in inverted commas, He's pushing boundaries. He's seeing how far he can go. He's compliance testing and compliance checking. And they know it and they need to be told to pack it in. You see, girls and women, we spend our lives dealing with inappropriate behaviour on the street, in the workplace, in pubs, bars and clubs, at the gym, in our homes, everywhere we go. There's not a day that goes by where we don't have to think about our safety and risk but men, however, rarely do the same. You see, as I said before, we move around the world in a different way. As Margaret Atwood once said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Malviolence is pervasive and prevalent. It's routine and ordinary. And when it's reported, rarely de police and others believe women and take it seriously. Many male officers, not all, I have to say, I've worked with some very good male officers, but most have no idea what it feels like. They have no idea what it means to be a woman, this daily risk assessment, this daily 360 that we have to do, nor do they try and step into our shoes or understand or empathise and rarely do they ask the right questions. And so yet again, with Mo's case, no link was made with this attack despite the victimology, the geography it being Leeds and the method, the fact that a hammer was used, and they ignored the description that she gave. These are significant similarities. Again, how many women are being struck over the head, stranger attacks on lone females at this time in these areas? Just to underline, again, this is really a rare type of offence, And it's extremely concerning that Mo's attack was, in inverted commas, airbrushed out, as she called it. And they should, at this stage, have had a very clear understanding of the type of offences that should be flagged and that they should be linking. For example, victim, lone female. Time of attack, at night, under the cover of darkness. MO, approached by a male, in a car or on foot, engaged in conversation hit over the back of the head, and or a knife used, nothing stolen. Geography, Leeds, Bradford, Manchester and surrounding areas. Description, white male, dark hair, beard and moustache, softly spoken, local accent. That should have gone out to all staff in West Yorkshire Police and surrounding force areas in the first instance with a request to flag cases up to the incident room. The incident room then should have a way of triaging cases and flagging them as the following. A1, believed to be linked. A2, strongly suspected to be linked. B1, possibly linked, further information required. B2, not enough information to say either way. It's really that simple. There would have been, undoubtedly, new investigative and forensic opportunities with Moe's attack, yet they were missed. I have to say, the senior leaders seem doomed to failure with every decision that they took. And at this stage, I have to wonder, was it a conscious strategy not to link offences? I.e., are they deliberately and consciously deciding to disregard cases, maybe because they're overwhelmed and can't deal with the current caseload that they have? If this was the case, it was a very costly decision, at the expense of more women being harmed and killed.
0: Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death.
1: It was bonfire night, Wednesday, the 5th of November, 1980, and Teresa Sykes left home to buy some cigarettes from her local off license in Huddersfield. It was literally about a hundred yards from her home address. Teresa was 16 at the time. She left her boyfriend Jimmy at home with their six month old baby while she popped out. Here's Teresa to tell you more.
4: When you're 16 and you don't even think about it which I appreciate. I didn't. It's like it can never happen to me. I mean, even when I knew that it was about it, was a, what happened to me? It was just before I got to the lamppost up there, and then once I got under the light, I looked round, and he was behind me. And I looked at him, and I looked at me, and it was sort of like a couple of seconds, and he walked off down the path. And then obviously I thought, yeah, it's all right, it's gone, and I carried on walking, and I'm walking down here. Um, I got like just past the second light, and noticed the shadow on the floor. I didn't hear anything, just the shadow. So I knew it was still there, but I still got the feeling that there was somebody behind me. And when I saw the shadow, that's what really frightened me. But I couldn't run. I couldn't do half the things that you always think, yeah, you can do. And I couldn't do it. So I grabbed of the gate and that is when he hit me. I started screaming. I can remember screaming and I can remember feeling footsteps running. And then the next time I came out, I'm you not know, talking to him. And I still didn't realise I was really hurt until I actually got in and saw blood. How close to home were you?
1: My home there I can see it from me, yeah. Thank goodness Teresa lived. From her account it's clear that he followed her. He stalked her. He wasn't put off by direct eye contact. And it sounds like she sensed danger when she saw his shadow. She knew she was being followed. She knew something was wrong. Again, her gut instinct kicking in. Teresa said that when she was attacked, she could see her house. And it just so happened that Jimmy, her boyfriend, was looking out of the window at the fireworks at the time. He saw Teresa being attacked and he ran out of the house and chased P.S. off. Unfortunately, he lost him. Detective Superintendent Dick Holland lived a mile and a half away. Police dogs were on the scene quickly, but P.S. had run down the back alleys and got away. Another narrow escape. Teresa was bleeding heavily and was rushed to hospital. She needed brain surgery and was lucky to survive the attack. There's no doubt that P.S. meant to kill her. Now, just a note on Teresa saying that she froze right before she was attacked... This is not an uncommon response. You see, people always say, well, if I was attacked, I would do X, Y, or Z. But in reality, unless you practice a response through self-defense or martial arts, you have no idea what you would actually do if, God forbid, something happened. You've probably heard of the fight-flight dynamic. Well, the fight-flight or freeze. But actually, there's a fourth. And that's also to collaborate or cooperate. ...if you believe that your life is in danger. Now, the fight-flight dynamic was coined by Walter Cannon in the 1930s... ...but he studied men only. Fight or flight is, in fact, a male response. Later, freeze was added. But the fourth, collaborate and cooperate if your life is in danger... ...is much more common amongst women. You see, for women, where male violence is concerned... ...we know that on a physicality level... We're not likely to win. And when our life is threatened, we're much more likely to try and talk our way out of it or cooperate to survive the life threatening situation, which is what we see in many hostage negotiation situations and with rape, domestic abuse, and coercive control victims. Again, the wrong questions tend to be asked Were you scared? And if you were, were you fearful enough? Did you sound scared? And how did you articulate your fear? Did you call out? Did you scream? Did you fight? Did you fight back? Did you fight hard enough? Normally these questions are asked by men who themselves have never been in this situation and most likely never will be. And next comes the blame, the judgments and the shaming. You see, women are really blamed for everything, even for trying to survive an attack. But like with Mo's case, police refused to link Teresa's case to the series. They told her parents not to go to the media. Now, I have no doubt that some officers probably thought that these offences were linked, but their opinion didn't count. It was only the senior officers that counted, ACC Oldfield and Detective Superintendent Holland. This is so outrageous that I have to say I'm leaning towards this being a deliberate and conscious decision on the part of the senior investigating officers, the SIOs, so that they didn't have to investigate these offences. How else can this be explained? Again, further investigative and forensic opportunities were lost. It's unconscionable and I have no idea how that must have felt for Mo and Teresa and Apagia to survive this level of sudden and targeted brutality, this level of hatred, and then for the police not to prioritise it, and then you have to deal with the recovery, the trauma in the aftermath. Oh, it's just so horrific. That's what it is. It's horrific. And there's a couple of other points that I want to make. P.S. narrowly escaped yet again. And this feels to me like he has local knowledge of the area's running up and down the rat runs and the alleyways. But he does appear to be more reckless, attacking young girls at night in densely residential areas, even when he's been seen right before the attack. But yet the police still didn't catch him. Well, they didn't even link these cases, and another 12 days later, another woman was attacked. Jacqueline Hill was a 20-year-old student from Middlesbrough. Jacqueline was kind, thoughtful and caring. She wanted to become a probation officer. She had a bright future ahead of her. On Monday the 17th of November 1980, Jacqueline Hill was on a bus that dropped her outside the Arndale Centre in Leeds after an evening class. She never made it home. Jacqueline's handbag was found that night by a man and it had her student card in it. There was blood inside the bag and so he called the police just after midnight. The police sergeant said it was most likely that the killer had struck again. The next day a shop manager at the Arndell Centre found Jacqueline's body. A coat was covering her. Her jeans had been pulled down. Professor David G. arrived at the scene. He noticed her bra had been pulled up and a silver locket was in her hair. She had several blows to her head from a hammer and stab wounds. It looked like she had been attacked 30 metres away and dragged into the car park. Where her handbag was found was very close to where her body was found. This begs the question, why wasn't the area searched that night? Well, if it was, it couldn't have been a very thorough search. Again, this leads me to believe that they weren't taking new reports seriously. There was no urgency, no priority. Women disappearing suddenly and unexpectedly like Jacqueline did and her handbag being found with blood on it. And what do they do? Nothing. The Prime Minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, was very concerned to the point that she wanted to go to Leeds herself and take over the investigation. She's not wrong, you know. The investigative team really needed some women involved at the senior level and the public criticised the police. There were protests as people demanded New Scotland Yard take over the case. The Prime Minister sent in Lord Byford to meet Chief Constable Gregory and he persuaded the Chief Constable that a new approach was needed. He agreed to the suggestion that the best way forward was to pull together a team of experienced officers and scientists who'd worked on large inquiries before this one. This experienced team took 17 days to review the case, while there were a lot of cases and a lot of paperwork. However, one of the first things that Professor Stuart Kind did... Now, Professor Stuart Kind was a well-known forensic scientist at the time. One of the first things he did was timeline each attack the time and the day of the attacks, and in particular, he mapped the late night attacks, early morning attacks that were in Leeds and Bradford. From this, he opined that the killer most likely lived in the Bradford area, Manningham or Shipley. Professor Kine, just like me, believed that the later attacks happened on his way home. Finally, someone who understood behaviour and took a common-sense approach to this investigation... You see, it really isn't rocket science. This is basic common sense. The early hours of the morning, most likely on his way home, the principle of least effort. Thus far, 5,000 officers had worked 2 million hours across the course of the investigation to be reduced to that one hour of mapping, just as I did, thinking laterally and mapping the offences by date, time and geography. It's unbelievable, and I'm truly shocked discovering that this happened at the time by Professor Stuart Kind. I had no idea. You see, it just shows again and again the devil really is in the detail. I always use a quote in my training, get the basics right and the rest will follow. And when I work major inquiries, I always say, and I was taught, two decades ago, clear the ground from under your feet before you move forward. This investigation team did neither of these things. And almost a month and a half later, after Jacqueline Hill's murder, it would be two South Yorkshire police officers who were out on patrol on January the 2nd, 1981, that would blow this whole investigation wide open.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer.
1: That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're now going to hear from Sergeant Robert Hyde from South Yorkshire, Police, who would describe what happened.
3: I was a probationer at the time and out on patrol with Sergeant Ring. He'd asked me if I was uh, if I'd done a prostitute file, pr- process one for court and uh, I told him no. So he says, "Well, we'll go and see if we can find one." He drove onto Melbourne Avenue, which is this road, and as we were approaching Light Trade's house, he said, uh, "There's one there." Just pointed We drove straight up uh, the driveway and parked directly in front of the uh, Rover car that they were in. I got out of the car, approached the driver, um, asked him his uh, name and address. He actually gave me uh, false details. Sergeant Ring approached the female occupant of the car had a conversation with them. Uh, We then did a PNC check on the uh, vehicle, the number plates that were displayed. That came back as a Skoda car, and obviously the one that they were in was a a Rover. I then uh, arrested uh, the driver of the vehicle, uh, who I later found out was, uh, when we got back to the station, was Peter William
4: Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe said he needed to urinate, so the two Sheffield policemen let him go in a corner. And then they took him back to their police station, under arrest for stealing number plates.
3: He was very agitated and uh, apprehensive, Um, even when you were talking about the simplest of things. I got the impression that he wanted to get out of the police station as quickly as possible. On and off, I spent about uh, eight hours with him uh, in this room. Uh, there was a photograph of the Yorkshire on the filing cabinet in here, which depicted a man with black hair, beard, moustache, very much like uh, Peter Sutcliffe, actually. Very good photo it.
4: They had a suspect who wore size 7 boots and had a gap in his teeth. But they had no real evidence. Next day, the two Sheffield policemen went back to the place where they'd made the arrest. They looked behind the oil tank where they'd left their suspect urinate. And there, one of them found what they'd missed before. A hammer there was a
3: bit of conversation as to who it could belong to. He was saying that it could belong to uh, the handyman because there was an oil tank at the side of uh, where it was. And that's when I stood on the wall and shone the torch down and said, well, the hammer might belong to him, but who does the knife belong to? And after that, uh, we knew that uh, the person we'd arrested uh, Was the man who was commonly known as the Yorkshire.
1: And so the arrest of PS was by two uniformed officers from a different police service on a routine night patrol. It's often the way that things go in major cases. A probationer being taught on the job by an experienced sergeant. And I'm now going to read out verbatim the exact sequence of events as recorded in the Byford Inquiry report so that you hear exactly what happened. Although I'm going to change a couple of things in that I'll refer to him as PS and I won't repeat the R word which is referenced repeatedly throughout this report. It was at ten fifty PM on Friday the second of january nineteen eighty one that Police Sergeant Ring and Police Constable Hydes were on motor patrol duty in Melbourne Avenue, Sheffield, when they noticed a rover saloon car with the registered number Hotel Victor Yankee six seven nine November parked in a driveway just off the road. They decided to check the vehicle, and Police Constable Hydes found PS in the driving seat and a woman named Olivia St. Elmo Reavers in the front passenger seat. Constable Hydes asked P.S. if he owned the car, and he said that he did. When asked for his name and address, he replied, John Williams, 65 Dorchester Road, Canclow. Sergeant Ring then joined Constable Hydes, and he questioned P.S. about the lady passenger. Initially, P.S. claimed that she was his girlfriend, but it subsequently transpired that he'd only met her that evening and didn't know her name. On being questioned by the sergeant, the woman gave her correct name. Both officers then went to the police car and put through a radio call to the local divisional police headquarters, giving details of PS and Reavers, and that they also asked for the registered number of PS's vehicle to be checked with the Police National Computer, PNC. By chance, Police Sergeant Armitage and Constable Tune were in the control room when the call was received, and as both were on anti-vice duties, they were able to immediately identify Reavers as being a convicted prostitute and the subject of a suspended sentence. Information then came from PNC that the registered number on PS's Rover saloon car had in fact been allocated to a Skoda motor car. This information, together with that relating to Reavers' previous convictions, was passed to the two officers at the scene and they decided to arrest both PS and Reavers on suspicion of theft. At the same time, Constable Hydes examined and took possession of a vehicle excise licence displayed on the vehicle which related to a Rover motor car. Registered number Foxtrot Hotel Yankee 400 Kilo. Surprisingly, P.S. was allowed to walk away from his car towards an oil tank situated a few feet away whilst Reavers was being taken to the police car. It was then that Sergeant Ring's attention was attracted by a noise which he later described as a scuffle coming from the direction of the oil tank he saw P.S. walking from the tank towards the police car and on being questioned as to why he had not accompanied breavers towards the vehicle, P.S. said that he had been looking for somewhere to urinate. This particular incident was to become of greater significance later. Upon arrival at the police station, Sergeant Ring and the two prisoners were seen by Sergeant Armitage, who was about to leave on another assignment with Constable Tune. These two officers were obviously intrigued by the circumstances surrounding the arrest of PS and Reavers, and they decided to visit the scene of the arrest, which was in a well-known area known to be frequented by local prostitutes and their clients. On their arrival, they were surprised to see the Rover car parked facing the road, as a usual practice in that vicinity is for cars to face the opposite direction so as to give more privacy to the occupants. Upon examining the vehicle, Sergeant Armitage saw that the registration plates numbered Hotel Victor Yankee 679 November had been taped over the original registration plates with black adhesive tape, and they were obviously forced to the car. The original plates bore the registered number Foxtrot Hotel Yankee 400 Kilo. Meanwhile, at the police station, Sergeant Ring and Constable Hyde had established PS's correct name and address and also the fact that he was the registered owner of a Rover motor vehicle, Foxtrot Hotel Yankee 400 Kilo. He readily admitted having stolen the registration plates from a Skoda motor car in a scrapyard near to House in West Yorkshire. Consequently, Sergeant Ring telephoned the divisional police headquarters at Dewsbury, which covers House, and he told an officer there of the facts. Sometime later, at about 1 a.m. on Saturday, the 3rd of January, he also telephoned the R incident room at Millgarth in Leeds and spoke to Detective Sergeant Bennett, relating to him the circumstances of P.S.'s arrest with the known prostitute and the fact that he had been in his own car, which had been displaying false number plates stolen from the scrapyard near Dewsbury. He asked Sergeant Bennett if he was interested in P.S. in relation to the R inquiry. Bennett said that he would search the incident room records and would telephone him back. Bennett found that P.S.'s index card showed that he had been interviewed in connection with the £5 note inquiry and also as a cross-area sighting. Additionally, there was a reference to his handwriting and also that his shoe size was eight and a half and that he had a gap in the centre of his upper teeth. Sergeant Bennett saw that P.S. had previously been eliminated from the inquiry solely on handwriting, but thankfully, and to his credit, he regarded this as being an inconclusive elimination and therefore decided to check the other papers related to him within the system. Perusing the relevant papers, he noted that in a written statement from P.S. that he had made previously to the police, he had said that he was a long-distance lorry driver. Bracket which had always been a suspect occupation in the R series, close bracket, and that he had denied ever going with prostitutes. He also saw from the records that P.S. had never been satisfactorily alibied from the series of murders, apart from a generalised alibi from time to time by his wife. There was also a further telling factor in that certain officers who had interviewed P.S. had not been satisfied with him and said so in their reports. Reading the papers as a whole, therefore, Sergeant Bennett came to the conclusion that P.S. should be classed as a suspect worthy of re-interview for the R murders and that he should be kept in custody during the interim. He telephoned the South Yorkshire Police to that effect and in doing so spoke to Constable Hyde as Sergeant Ring had returned to outside patrol. Subsequently, P.S. was taken in custody to Dewsbury Police Station and during the course of Saturday the 3rd of January, he was interviewed by Detective Sergeant O'Boyle of the West Yorkshire Police about his possible implication in the R murders, but to no avail. When Sergeant Ring resumed duty at 10pm on Saturday the 3rd of January, he was told by the duty inspector that P.S. was still in custody at Dewsbury. There followed speculation as to whether P.S. could be classed as a strong suspect for the Yorkshire R murders, and this prompted Sergeant Ring to return to the scene of the arrest of P.S. and Reavers the night before and search the immediate area. Sergeant Ring, while searching under some leaves near to the oil tank, found a ball-peen hammer and a knife. This was a mammoth development, of course, and the information was relayed to Detective Inspector Boyle of the West Yorkshire Police at about 1am on Sunday the 4th of January. In possession of such important evidence and with photostack copies of the documents relating to P.S. as filed in the major incident room, Inspector Boyle went to Dewsbury Police Station. Throughout that day, P.S. was then interviewed by Detective Inspector Boyle and Sergeant O. Boyle. Eventually, he admitted all the offences for which he was later to be convicted. Naturally, the events in the 48 hours following P.S.'s arrest were a hectic period in the life of the arresting officers, and especially Sergeant Ring. According to him, it was not until the 8th of January, some four days after PS's admissions, that he had sufficient time to fully reflect on the detailed happenings surrounding the arrest. Among other things... He no doubt realised that the actual police action at the scene of PS's arrest had not been in strict accord with recognised police practice in that he and Constable Hydes had allowed PS on alighting from his car to walk across towards the vicinity of the oil tank and so have the opportunity to hide the hammer and knife beneath the leaves. This obviously prompted him to think about the other events surrounding PS's arrest and detention, and he then records, so he says, that PS had been allowed to use a lavatory at the police station before being searched and without close police supervision. He reported this to Detective Inspector Slack, who, accompanied by Sergeant Ring, searched the water system in the lavatory and found a wooden-handled knife. During his lengthy interview at Jewsbury, P.S. admitted to the police that he had concealed this knife in the lavatory cistern and also the ball ballpane hammer and the knife near the scene of his earlier arrest. Good Lord, what a turn of events. Two uniformed officers, Sergeant Ring and Police Constable Hyde, breaking this case wide open on routine patrol, a traffic stop and not buying what P.S. was selling. Their next thought was how alike he looked to the photo fits, and that he had been arrested with a prostitute, and how off his demeanor was. Next, they checked with the incident room, and the breath of fresh air that was DS Bennett took the time to check the index and find out further information about previous interviews information that has miraculously reappeared when he checked and congratulations to D.S. Bennett for using his common sense and going against the grain, not allowing P.S. to be eliminated on handwriting alone and making the call to treat him as a suspect who should not be released. And well done to Sergeant Ring, who had the presence of mind to go back to the scene and find the knife and hammer and then to search the water system... You see, these are all common sense, good policing decisions. I say it sincerely when I say well done. Well done for asking more questions, for being curious and trusting your instincts. Sergeant Ring was responsible for arresting one of the UK's most prolific serial killers and predatory stalkers and saving Olivia Revers' life in the process and many other future women. And yes, Sergeant Ring, you should have been promoted and celebrated with awards and commissioners' commendations and treated as a true hero, because that's what you are, sir. Magnificent work. You see, it's really not that difficult. And it took us seven episodes to end on a high, and here we are. So I'm going to let you enjoy this moment. I'm going to let you process everything that I've shared with you, And I hope that you're going to join me next week back in the intelligence cell for part eight of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios.